Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Civil Action. Brian Kabatek coming to you from our law firm in beautiful downtown Los Angeles, along with Sean Kanikin, who joins me every time we do one of these podcasts covering interesting civil cases that are important to the plaintiff's practice in California. Kept from the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, uh, Ninth Circuit, and the United States Supreme Court. Sean, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me on as a guest. You're not a guest. You're here every single episode. We I'm do. like a host. You're okay. You're a host. You're I'm a, a host. co-host. Oh, wow. Wow. That's pretty cool. Well, today we have a pretty interesting set of cases. Uh, we're going to start out with a California Supreme Court case. Do you know which one that is, Brian? I do. It's that's the California Supreme Court, not the United States Supreme not Court. Not in Washington, D.C. Correct. And it's a case that has to do with 558 civil penalties. It's actually a pretty bad case for the plaintiff's bar. We'll talk about that. Then we're going to talk about a case that has to do with sanctions under 128.7, something that everyone should be wary of. Uh, Then we're going to talk about uh, using statistical sampling and analysis to prove up uh, the viability of a uh, case for class certification. Also a bad case. Also a bad case, a pretty bad result for the plaintiff's bar. Then we're going to talk about liquidated damages and dealing with default under a settlement agreement. And lastly, we're going to talk about attorney uh, disqualification with perhaps one of Brian's most favorite cases in his uh, preference for the case has nothing to do with the subject matter. Uh, But yeah, interesting set of cases today. Um, Should we get started with the first one here, Brian? Right. So let's talk about the first case. So we'll spend probably um, more time on this specific case than than any of the other cases we have today. This is a case called ZB versus Superior Court. We're going to call it Lawson because that's pretty much how it's now being referred to in the legal community as the Lawson decision from the California Supreme Court. Now I'm going to start by just editorializing a little bit here that uh, this Supreme Court, as it's been constituted now with a majority of the justices appointed by Jerry Brown um, and the chief justice, uh, those five particularly, as well as the others, really have been very pro-employee when it comes to interpreting labor law of the state of California and the way that the law should be applied and the issues like that. And we've seen a real series of cases come down that have important impact on the employees of the state of California. This case is not one of them. No, this, this is bad news yeah, it's for employees. Bad. It's really bad, and and I understand. So I think to really understand this case, we need to go back to a case called Iskanian versus CLS Transportation. Uh, that case goes back a few years from the California Supreme Court, where the California Supreme Court held in 2014 that um, you cannot apply mandatory arbitration provisions to cases that are... Um, uh, that fall under PAGA, Private Attorney General Act. That was good news for the plaintiff's bar because, you know, with that, you have a wage in our case and you allege PAGA in there, uh, the Private Attorney General Act, you, you can't be compelled to arbitration. Right, and I, I, I want to even go back further to about 2010 when the California, when the United States Supreme Court started holding in a series of cases that started with a case called Concepcion versus AT&T or ATT versus Concepcion, I'm never mm-hmm. sure which it is. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that um, mandatory forced arbitration was binding. And, of course, there's been a ton of precedent since then that has been almost exclusively horrible for consumers and employees in the United States. And Iskanian was the California Supreme Court's decision saying not everything's subject to arbitration because under the Private Attorney General Act – these are really actions that the Labor Commissioner or the Attorney General of the State of California could bring against employers. And because private parties are deputized to bring those cases, uh, that the, the law that requires mandatory arbitration doesn't apply. And 
one of the sections under which uh, plaintiffs often tried to enforce PAGO is sec- uh, Labor Code Section 558. And Labor Code Section 558 was enacted before PAGO was enacted. And it basically provided for civil penalties. Um, and the way it's worded is for any violation, $50 for each underpaid employee plus an additional uh, – for the first for the first violation – Plus, and this is from the actual uh, code section, in a, uh, that's in addition to an amount sufficient to recover underpaid wages. And then for each subsequent violation, it's $100 in addition to an amount sufficient to recover underpaid wages. We need to emphasize here that it mentions that it's in addition to an amount sufficient to recover underpaid wages because that's how these cases would often be brought. Plaintiff would sue under PAGA. They'd say we're trying to collect wages and civil penalties under Civil Code Section 558. So that was the avenue for getting the underpaid wages. That was the avenue for keeping this stuff out of arbitration. Uh, now, there's been a, a bit of split of authority on this question or this issue about whether you could scoop up both the penalties as well as the unpaid wages, and a number of courts of appeal, and I mean a number, held that um, you could, that it would be splitting the cause of action to do otherwise, that the penalties and the way that the labor code was drafted uh, meant that um, you could both collect the, the penalty as well as the wages. Yeah, and PAGA cases are representative actions. They're not like PAGA cases. Uh, I'm sorry, they're not like class. They're not like class cases. cases. You don't need to certify it, but you still represent all of the aggrieved parties. We don't call them a class in PAGA cases. We call them we call it the aggrieved parties. Um, So here, Lawson brought this case um, seeking civil penalties and and unpaid wages under five five eight. Right, in a representative action, which meant that she was seeking them for not just herself, but for um, all the members of the class of employees that worked at this particular banking group, right? Yeah, and the banking group moved to compel arbitration, um, arguing that Lawson had to individually arbitrate her unpaid wages portion of the claim under 558 because it's not, they argued, a PAGA civil penalty claim. It's, it's different from the penalty of the $50 for the first violation, $100 for subsequent. It's, it's a separate form of damages, and that needs to be arbitrated because it's not, under, it's not proper to bring it under PAGA. So, so the trial court agreed. They yeah, bifurcated, and, and they said, yeah, you're going to have to do uh, um, arbitration of the representative action for the uh, unpaid wages. Uh, they allowed, I believe, for the civil penalties portion to proceed. Court of Appeal reversed. Court of Appeal reversed. Court of Appeal is one of the cases, this long line of cases that said, no, it's they're joint. You can't split it. You can't compel arbitration. Citing Iskanian, right? Citing Iskanian and citing other Court of Appeal decisions that are on, on point. And so it climbs its way up to the California Supreme Court. And surprisingly, in a unanimous decision, the, the first thing they hold is, look, we're, we're reaffirming Iskanian. And, and 558 means you can't arbitrate these penalties. But these penalties are $50 for the first week and $100 for the second week. But then it goes off the rails at that point, right? And they say, but, you know, when you're coming in asking for your unpaid wages, that's not really a penalty. Right. They create, they almost kind of, I don't want to say sua sponte because it was an issue, but the entire opinion focuses on the question of something even more fundamental, which is can a plaintiff seek an amount sufficient to recover underpaid wages, as stated in 558, uh, in a PAGA action at all? 
So that's what this whole opinion focuses on. And spoiler alert, you know, they, they say no. They say that those are not civil penalties. Those are separate. Um, and they, you know, I, I don't mean to kind of blow the surprise here, but they ultimately conclude that it's not a civil penalty and a private citizen has no authority to collect it under PAGA. It's not a surprise. I mean, we pretty much started yeah, this yeah, by yeah. saying it's, it's a bad terrible. case yeah, and it's not a good result and it deviates from the way the Supreme Court's been going. So so the only thing now you can seek under PAGA action is what? The, the civil penalties. That's right. You can't, even get, you can't even get your Section 203 penalties, which would be a full month's wages for waiting time, right? Right. No waiting time penalty. I mean, you could get the penalties, but you can't get the, you can't get the uh, damages. All you can get— Could you get the Section 203 penalties of a full month of pay if it takes them at least a month to get you paid? I, not anymore. So is there's only one good thing that came out of this case, and I, I question even in my own mind how good it is. It's that the court went on to, to affirmatively say there's no question that that people could invoke issue preclusion or collateral estoppel for uh, if the, there is a, a PAGA action that wins or if the labor commissioner brings an action and they prevail on that. There, there's no question that the employee could later employ collateral estoppel and say, well, we don't have to relitigate that you owe me that money because there's always already been a finding, which I guess if you're looking for a silver lining here, that's your silver lining. But it still draws one huge problem in this case. You're still going to be subject to arbitration. Right. Right. And, you know, the bottom line is, Sean, is that, I mean, I think that... On the that, wages, yeah, you're still going to be... Look, I like this Supreme Court. I think most of their decisions are, are, are good. I think I saw this decision maybe a little differently than you did. I saw this as they're trying to thread the needle on this whole arbitration issue. They know that the Iskanian line of case is going to eventually end up before the big, bad United States Supreme Court. And the big, bad United States Supreme Court could very easily come back and say, you've got a method here which doesn't work. And I think they're trying to thread the needle, but maybe they're trying sure. a little too hard. I guess maybe that might be the silver lining, that they're trying to protect Iskanian by separating out unpaid wages as, no, this is not a this is not a penalty. All that you're recovering under a case that's protected from arbitration under Iskanian is civil penalties that the state would be allowed to recover. But, but again, I kind of disagree with that because the statute itself – Prior to the inaction of PAGA, the statute itself, which was meant only for a labor commissioner, allowed for collection of the penalty and enough to compensate for the unpaid wages. So, you know, it, it's a tough decision, but I hope in the big picture it's for. And it's let for me, like, can I just say one last thing about this? Sure. The only solution to this ultimately is going to be getting Congress and the President of the United States to sign it and some kind of a restriction on the Federal Arbitration Act because the Federal Arbitration Act is ruining America when it hey, comes to Hey, and that's slowly happening. I mean, I think that's, that's slowly happening because, again, people on both sides of the aisle don't like arbitration. All right. Our next, next case, case here is Primo Hospitality versus Stephen Haney, and um, there's the appellant is Mar- Mark... Libarl. And this is a case that has to do with 128.7 sanctions. Um, so let's start the there. Safe harbor provision. In 128.7 is modeled after Federal Rule 11. Federal Rule 11 says once you sign a pleading of any kind, you're attesting to it at some degree that it's based upon a good faith finding, right? 
and um, you can be sanctioned. Now, 128.7 sanctions are pretty rare in California litigation, uh, and maybe someone would argue that um, there, it's too rare that there should be you know more liberalism given for that. But on the other hand, uh, it can have a chilling effect on litigation. And the the most important aspect to understand about 128.7 before we get into the facts of primo hospitality here, and I know Sean's going to do a great job of telling us the facts in just a second, but the most important factor is that 128.7 effectively has a safe harbor, which says it gives you an opportunity to reconsider your actions and make a determination if what you're actually doing, you should be doing. It gives you one last chance before you get banged over the head with a baseball bat. Right, And the very purpose of that provision, as outlined in the opinion, is that allows a party to kind of uh, reconsider what they're doing and, and fix it. Um, but anyway, the facts here are super interesting. When we were talking about this case before we started recording, I told Brian this sounds like a nightmare client. So the client uh, or the the plaintiff in the underlying litigation that led to all of this is uh, a company, Primo Hospitality Group, that owns uh, a shop or runs a shop that ran a t- ran a shop. Yeah, past at, tense at the Americana, which is a uh, big a, giant mall in Glendale, outdoor mall in Glendale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian's a big fan. You can find him there on the weekends. Nope, um, never been there. So anyway, uh, this, this uh, Primo group decides to sue the Americana because they're pressure washing and water got into their unit. And at some point, the first set of attorneys that Primo had hired uh, advises them to vacate the premises and cease paying rent. Now, I don't do a lot of landlord-tenant stuff, but that doesn't sound like a great idea. Yeah, I'm not, a, not, landlord, I'm not a landlord-tenant expert. There may have been good reason for doing it, but uh, it didn't seem to go well. They did vacate. They go to trial, ultimately. Primo does win at win something at trial. They get like $840,000 but um, and a $560,000 separate award. But then the jury awards the Americana even more money one point twenty over one point twenty five million, and then the trial court awards Americana another one point twenty five million. So ultimately, Primo is the loser here on balance. Um, so Primo turns around and they decide to sue their uh, attorneys. Here, they decide to sue their second set of attorneys, not the folks that advise them to stop paying rent and just leave. They so what happened to that? Yeah, so that's the a legal malpractice of, case. That's what a legal malpractice case. The second set of attorneys turns around, files a summary judgment motion, says we had nothing to do with this. We're not the ones that advise them of that. In fact, they didn't even tell us their previous counsel told them to do this, and they went on the summary judgment motion. So the legal malpractice case ends. Legal malpractice case ends, and the attorneys that were defending themselves in that legal malpractice case file the 128.7 motion for sanctions against the new attorney in the legal malpractice now, case. Now, here's where it gets Primo. important. The 128.7 letter goes out. The time under the 128.7 letter expires. Right. And then the new lawyer the enters new lawyer the case. Subs. The new lawyer who ultimately tries the case to a defense verdict loses the case, and now the law firm that got sued is coming after him for 128.7 sanctions. Right. And, go on. And um, the, the trial court ultimately f- uh, awards the sanctions and files finds that the case was without merit because these lawyers that got sued, the defendants in the malpra- malpractice case, had nothing to do with the bad advice that was, uh, the potentially bad advice that was given. Um, and then the Court of Appeal decides to take a look at it. And, well, the trial court awards the sanctions, and the first thing that we look at is what's the standard on a review for the Court of Appeal. It's... Um, it's pretty high uh, abuse of discretion because it's usually given to the trial court. And then they look and they analyze 
And what they ultimately conclude in this case is that um, you can't sandbag somebody with a 128.7 that was in effect and the time for the safe harbor had expired before those lawyers actually took over the case. Right. And moreover, another reason that the Court of Appeal says that you can't sandbag uh, the lawyer here is because he didn't even sign the initial pleading that asserted these allegedly uh, uh, non-meritorious claims. Right. But what the what the party that brought the 128.7 motion said is, look, he joined the case. He jumped into right. it. He knew better. He shouldn't have done it. There was plenty of advice out there. He certainly saw the 128.7. So he's stuck with it, and that's their argument. The Court of Appeal said no, and that's a good rule. Yeah, and the, the Court of Appeal agrees. They say, look, this lawyer may have continued to present the claims by being in the case, um, even though he didn't file the initial pleading. But again, the letter, the 128.7 letter, went out. B- and you know what gets me about this, this is that would have been an easy resolution of this, which is reserve the letter. Right. Reserve it. Right. And just say, hey, listen, this will give you an opportunity to get out. This is bad news. Right. We hear you're the new counsel. Here's the letter again. But All right. So uh, easy a rule to kind of follow. One to get, you know, no one likes getting these 128.7 letters. I always take them very seriously when we get them. Uh, fortunately, never been hit with anything remotely like those kind of sanctions. Um, but you should take care of them. And if you're on the other side of it, be sure that you're serving in a timely fashion. Let's go to our next case, which is McCreary versus Allstate. No, it's actually not an insurance or insurance bad faith case. This is an employment case. It involves Allstate and farmers. And um, at core issue here is sort of the Dynamex issue, right, which is who is an independent contractor and who isn't an independent contractor. It's a misclassification case. That's right. And here the uh, putative class of plaintiffs are property inspectors that allege that they were employed as employees by three service companies um, and two major insurance companies doing basically property inspections, it sounds like. So this has nothing to do with the claims process. It has everything to do with, I think, the underwriting process. And this is when you go out, Sean, if you actually own something, and you go out and you want to do insure it, and you actually have the foresight to insure something, both of which Not are no, huge no. leaps Huge leaps nope. in, in our you nope. know hypothetical. Yeah. But uh, they would come out and they'd take a look at it. They'd do an inspection. They'd say yes, no, whatever. Uh, and that's what these this group of people do. So they're suing, saying misclassification. And at the core of the misclassification was wage and hour violations, right? They're claiming that they're owed minimum wages, overtime, bill and rest breaks, reimbursement of expenses, wage statements, all of the things that go along with being an employee because these companies – uh, kind of categorize them as independent contractors. Another issue in the case is whether or not they were jointly employed by the insurance companies. So I'm assuming the insurance companies hired the servicing company. Servicing company hires these guys, sends them out, and they do the inspections. But the key issue really here is a trial plan. So here's yep. sort of to frame the issue in the case. It goes up to the Court of Appeal, comes back. The Court of Appeal says you have to trial court consider a trial plan is part of the process of certifying a case. So in order to certify a case, one of the things you have to find is manageability. Right, and you have to show that you can establish liability. And here, so it goes up two times. So the first time around, the class submits their class cert motion and says, we have this expert and using statistical analyses from an anonymous double-blind survey, we can establish liability. Uh, Trial court summarily rejects this plan, denies certification, They take it up on appeal. Uh, The Court of Appeal reverses, remands, and says, no, actually consider whether or not the plan works. So so it comes back, and they submit this plan, 
and they hire somebody who's a uh, like a statistician, does surveys. He knows what he's doing. He comes up with a survey. He comes up with a plan. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to do surveys, and it comes back to the court of appeal. It's a fair, or it comes back to the trial court, and the trial court looks at it and says, "No, we're not going to let it go forward. No class certification. It's not manageable because the plan doesn't address." Um, uh, uh, sort of company-wide practices and variations among the various inspectors. There's no way to individualize them. The plan's still anonymous. We don't know who worked full-time or part-time. We don't know what hours they worked. There's no specific records of the amount of time that they worked. And it kind of goes on down the line. And um, it comes up, so the court denies certification. It comes up to um, the Court of Appeal a second time. And here the Court of Appeal finds that the trial plan is inadequate and unfair. And um, so what – And this is something that defendants often argue when they're opposing summary judgment. Yeah, they really do. And they, yeah. what they're really arguing is – But yeah, but at the core what they're really arguing is if, if you can remember back to the time of the recession in the last decade, there was a phrase that went around, too big to fail, too big to fail, too big to fail. This is sort of what I call too big to certify. Yeah. Just too yeah. bad for you. Yeah. Our company's so big, you just can never, ever try. certify it. Yeah. You can't certify yeah. it because it's not manageable and there's no way to manage it. And I have a real problem with this. And, and these are really good uh, court of appeal justices, really good trial judge. But I have a problem with this because the first thing they say is um, you can't do it. You can't establish the facts. Uh, the survey's too too vague. It doesn't get enough information. It's really unfortunate because really what's happening is the both the trial court and the court of appeal is acknowledging that, look, there is a uh, problematic policy here. There is a violation. But since you can't prove it on an individual level um, and since defendant's not going to have the right to cross-examine every single person and present a defense as to every single person, then we can't certify it. We can't move forward with it. It's, and, it's and, and what I think should it's happen. It's really unfair. Yeah, what I should is unfair. And what I think should happen is there should be a burden shift here. That if you're the company and you're employing people and you're calling them independent contractors, there should be some shifting to the employer to say, okay, we're going to establish that these people didn't work the requisite number of hours, that they really are independent contractors, as opposed to the plaintiff. And what I would have done in a case like this, if I were in the court, is I would have said, let's deal with the first issue of whether or not they're even independent contractors. Yeah, and... You can phase it like this and come up with things like that. Look, I'm sure these guys tried to do that. In fact, there's language in the opinion where they note and agree with the trial court that the uh, statistician has come up with a carefully crafted to verify – the survey was carefully crafted to verify appropriate respondents and accuracy in their responses. You know, they're they're complementing his plan. How would you ever do it? they have no problem with the science. How would you ever do it? I mean, I guess the only way to do it is you'd have to get every single class member who's going to participate in the class – to answer some kind of questionnaire and then make them available for cross for cross examination, which completely defeats the purpose of class actions. And, and near the end of the case, um, there is a word here where the where the class lawyers said once the subclasses are certified and liabilities established, then they could submit claims by answering questionnaires, and any dispute could be resolved by a streamlined trial during which defendants could cross examine. And that's rejected by the that's court of appeal. So. Well. The, the truth about this case is the court saying just too big to certify. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate, and we're going to keep seeing this argument. This is going to be a great case for defendants to cite in their oppositions to motions for class certification, and, and it's just unfortunate, just further chipping away at employee rights here. 
All right. So the next case that we have is Red and White Distribution versus Asteroid Enterprises. This is an interesting case that comes up after a case has been settled. It has to do with the breach of a settlement agreement or default under settlement agreement and incorporating liquidated damages into a settlement agreement. So these two parties, uh, Red and White and Asteroid, have a dispute. They ultimately settle the case, and their um, settlement agreement has a... uh, a clause in there that says a stipulated judgment will be entered if the uh, party that's making the payments defaults on their payments. Right. Something that we sometimes see in cases where there's going to be a payout or something like that down the road. Yeah. And the amount of, I believe the amount of damage, the amount of the settlement was something like um, $2.1 million. It was exactly $2.1 million. And then there was a default that said, if you didn't pay on time, you owe us $2.8 million. And lo and behold, guess what happened, Sean? They defaulted. Right. They didn't so, pay on time. So they go into the trial court, and they say, they didn't pay on time, we want to accelerate it, and we want our $2.8 million. And the court, now this I think is important because, while maybe a lot of our folks that listen don't actually do contract cases, but there sometimes are liquidated damages clause for breach of confidentiality or, or failure to perform or something like that in agreements that we have. And what the court focused on here was... Uh, uh, Code of Civil Procedure Section 664.6, which is the enforceability statute. But then a line of cases from the uh, California Supreme Court talking about um, uh, what's really effectively a penalty. Right. And um, the and there's case law, even uh, not, not even just case law, but the Civil, Civil Code Section 1671 says that liquidated damages provisions are valid unless it can be shown that they're unreasonable under circumstances. And then... So a, as to constitute a penalty, right? Right. And, and, and if, it, if it constitutes... Sorry, if it bears no reasonable relationship to the range of actual damages, right. then it's presumed to be unreasonable. And, and an unenforceable penalty is a question of law, so this is a question always going to be for the trial for judge. For the court to decide. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, there's no specific rule, but they do look at the ratio. And here, $700,000, which is the delta between 2.1 and 2.8, in case you missed math class, is, um, they said that's, that's a penalty. Math. That's, that's good math. Too that's high. Correct. That's too high. Right. Uh, that, that looks to be offensive. And um, we're not going to go along with it. And the uh, the court said, nope, you can't enforce the 2.8. You can only go back to the 2.1 because of liquidated damages clause. But the court does suggest a way to make this type of thing work if the parties want to agree to it. What, right. what would they do? And that's and, But, of course, too late here because it has to be at the time you enter into the actual right. settlement. What they said they could have done is they could have said both parties agree that $2.8 million is the amount of money you owe. But if you pay it in a timely fashion, according to this payment plan, we'll reduce it to 2.1. And and unfortunately, they got this completely backward. They just said 2.1 is the amount owed, but if you don't pay on time. Unless you screw up, then you're going to pay us more money. I'm I'm on the fence about how I feel about this, and and not to sound too much like a libertarian, but I think people should have the freedom to contract. Well, the court didn't disagree with you there. They didn't completely disagree with you. They said that the rule could be subject to uh, legitimate criticism. And then they go on to say, but we have to follow what the legislature and the Supreme Court has said, so they're following that. And then I think they really are giving a practice tip here and say that, you know, if you're going to do this, come up with a way that it's reasonably related. In fact, the case in the introduction has a little practice tip, or it says that this is a practice tip. It says, we publish to remind practitioners whose clients settle a dispute involving payments over time how to incentivize prompt payment properly and what may happen if done 
incorrectly. Okay, okay, So now okay. they're, they're okay. publishing okay. a practice. Okay, okay, okay. Can we get on to my favorite case of yeah, sort of an Brian's otherwise very, very excited either bad or me- mediocre day? Just the name is interesting. This right. is the National Grange of the Order of... Of patrons of husbandry. Say it again. I just got to hear it. The range of the order of patrons of husbandry. Versus? The California Guild and the Which was formerly known as the California Grange Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. California State Grange. Right. And California Guild. And and so, I don't know. What is husbandry? Well, uh, we can't talk about that on the air. Okay. Well, Well, this is on satellite radio, so... We well, we're on satellite. It. We are. We have our own channel now. Um, uh, the Grange actually is the official name of the National Grange of the Order of Patrons of Husbandry. It's a fraternal organization that was founded at the end of the Civil War, and it it is the oldest American agricultural ag- advocacy group in the United States. They lobby state legislatures on ag and and in at least two thousand and five, probably uh-huh. when you were still in college. Uh huh. I was. They had a, they had twenty one hundred chapters, wow, and hundred and sixty thousand members. So this just goes to prove that where you growing up here in Los Angeles, did you were you a member of the National Grange of the Order of Patrons of Husbandry? No, I don't have much experience with agriculture or animal husbandry. Well, I think you have plenty of experience with agriculture, but that's a different story. <laughs> Uh, well, when we first read the title, we thought this had to do with people, like an organization that that's really into like breeding animals, right? Right. Well, we maybe. Like a, yeah. Maybe. It turns out it's like a farming lobby. Uh, but anyway, the subject we didn't has solely pick to this do with, the, we, with with these what the we we partially are. picked it because of the name. Let's be true. Sure. But we only sure. partially picked it because of the name. The other reason we picked it is because it's another one of those cautionary tales about disqualification. Right, disqualification. And so the National Grange at some point was suing um, the former um, – was in a lawsuit. So the National Grange and the California Grange, the state level of the organization, was suing the, the, a former iteration, like a former charter of the state, state iteration. So National Grange, California Grange was suing the California Guild. Very exciting stuff. But anyway, a lawyer that worked for the National Grange, or, or a lawyer that worked for a law firm that represented well, actually, the National Grange. Well, actually, I'll interrupt you because this is important. I think it was a young lawyer. It was a young lawyer, And I yeah. think he worked for the law firm representing the National Group, and then at some point he switched and he went to work for the law firm that was representing the state group, The right? former state group, the one that they were litigating against. And but how much work did he do for the National Group? Well, like 25 hours. 26 hours on the 2012 litigation. Doing discovery. By in discovery, drafting memos, performing case law research, and communicating by phone and email with other people. Goes to the other firm. The other firm hires him. And we'll get into a couple of the details here briefly, but um, the upshot of the case is that the other firm gets disqualified. Hires him four years after he did some of that, you know, the 25 hours of work uh, for the previous firm. Right. And, and uh, they... They hire him, and they end up getting disqualified for hiring a young lawyer who worked 26 hours four years earlier. But what the issue here is, the first thing you have to understand about disqualification, the court highlights this, is that there is a presumption. And the presumption, when it's a rebuttable presumption, but there's a presumption that exists when somebody who worked at one firm goes to another and basically switching sides. But 
the first level of this is if that lawyer never worked on the case. So if the lawyer never worked on the case, that's maybe one level of scrutiny versus where the lawyer actually worked on the case. And the right. court says, look, we're not stupid. We know that lawyers talk in their law offices, except in ours where they're not allowed to talk. Right. In, in fact, in order to seek disqualification, you don't need to show that the attorney even has confidential information. You can seek disqualification if you right, just show that. that's peeking behind the curtain, and that right. would be like, well, tell us what you know. Right. But the real problem here was that the law firm that hired the young lawyer um, erected some kind of a uh, an ethical wall, which used to be called a Chinese wall, but that's now become disfavored. Right. So even though there is a wall of China— but the ethical wall to, to wall off the person. Mm-hmm. And, but there's no evidence that they did it at the time the person came to work there, even though they, they knew that he had worked on this other case. And it looks like it was done after the fact. And it was um, done in response to the complaints. And so uh, since it wasn't contemporaneous, and since the policy, the firm didn't have written policies and practices regarding the, um, the, uh, the erection of an ethical wall and that there, this was all done after the fact, the court jumped all over that and said you can't do it. So um, probably not a wrong decision under the circumstances, but it's really a cautionary table, and it's something that irks me as someone who advocates for young lawyers and their ability to create their own career and have their own career. You know, I'll just use one example, which is some young lawyer gets out of law school, goes to a firm that represents insurance companies, not insureds but carriers, and then at some point wants to go over and start doing plaintiff's work and ends up at a firm that, that may or may not sue insurance companies, well, th- that firm's going to be prevented from ever suing that insurance company, even if the lawyer right. worked 26 hours on discovery years earlier. And even if it's disclosed and even if an ethical wall has been put up. So there are a lot of challenges there, both for the, practi- like the Always, owner of the firm right. and both for the young and, lawyers. So that's a cautionary tale. Be careful where you work. Be careful what you do. And, and always inform people when you're moving When firms. you're hiring people. Yeah. Or when you're hiring people, always ask them. You know yeah. what they worked on, particularly yeah. if they're a firm that, that's on the other side of cases that you typically handle. So that's all we got for today. Unfortunately, that's I didn't work for an insurance company, so Brian had no excuse to not hire me. Oh, so. I've got plenty of excuses. But yeah, that's, that's all we got for today, Shant. Uh, this has been great. I uh, We do this uh, on a weekly basis, trying to review you up to date on new cases. We'll have another one coming soon. Uh, Sean, tell people where they can find us. We're online at kbklawyers.com and you can find us on all social media platforms. You should also check out our website to see about upcoming seminars that we do. We do free CLE seminars. You know, you can come, listen to us talk, eat some free food, drink some free wine, I think, and uh, get some CLE credit. Um, and we'd love to hear feedback from you both, whether it's coming to seminars, emailing us. We'd love to hear any questions you may have or any suggestions about cases you want us to cover. So thanks for tuning in next time.